Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I'm talking with Mikkel Maher about his book, Six Plays. Uh, Mikkel, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy. I was very delighted when I reached out to you. I I'd reached out about a, a somewhat earlier book, and you told me that you'd published this big volume of six plays, and and uh, that was great news for me. I, it was a real pleasure reading the book, and it, it's very cool to kind of see your work collected from the whole span of your career in one volume. Yeah, it is. It is cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, it's been a. Uh... It's plays over over twenty years, so um, it was it was nice to see them all in one, in one handy, one handy book. How do you think your style has evolved over those twenty years? Uh, I think um, I'm not sure. That's uh, such a that's a that's a that's a difficult question because um, I'm probably the worst person to talk about what my plays, uh, what my plays are and how other people see them. But from the, from the inside, it always feels like I'm writing the same play. Mm -hmm. I think Robert Altman had that, that great phrase that it's all one movie, all of his, all of his movies, just one movie. And that's the way I've felt that I haven't, I've had some departures, but uh, where I've just needed to take a break from my particular concerns and, and obsessions and written different things, but the plays in this volume um, are all feel all of a all of a piece to me. They all seem centered on on many of the same questions, and the the writing uh, style or voice that I I discovered for myself sometime in the '90s is just the same one. And though there's obviously the plays are different; they have different characters, they have different stories. Um, the, the evolution of that style, I, I always feel like I'm starting from scratch with the same, um, very limited set of tools. Mm. So from my perspective, I'm, I'm still, I'm still that same playwright who's trying to figure out the, you know, the first play in the volume Faustus, the fastest play. And then, um, the most recent one, it is magic. It just feel, I feel I'm the same the same person, which is not always a good feeling, but that's, that's the truth. Yeah. If I were to sort of venture what some of the common elements are, your plays always or almost always are in a explicit conversation with another, either literary or pop culture or theatrical work. Yeah. Um, and they're often written in one long scene. That's not true of every play in this volume, but almost all of them are, are yeah. written in that kind of continuous scroll. Yeah. Um, is there is, is there anything in particular that you kind of enjoy about both of those things about work that is very much in conversation with another work and also that kind of sense of a sort of continuous present? Uh, you know, you've hit on the, the the big question. Enjoy is probably the wrong word. It's more more like a, a, a necessary for me. Um, I necessarily need to have 
a, a, a sort of an established work, um, a classic, if you will, uh, work to to bounce ideas off of and have it present in the room with me. Um, that's just I found a long time ago. That's just something that I needed to to make a piece go. And I and uh, again talking about those that very limited uh, tool set that I have. Um, that's just a it's. Um, it's what I begin with. That's the only way I can get start getting um, ideas and characters down onto the page is is to bring in another another writer's voice and work that's already been sort of chewed up and um, digested by the culture at large. Um, uh, the the one long sort of continuous you know single action. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's. It's uh, not enjoyable. It's, it's it's easier for me to coordinate all the thoughts in my head if I'm if I'm saying we're just going to stay in one room, mm-hmm. so we're just going to stay in one place and keep exits and entrances to a minimum, and um, the, and coordinate the ideas that often conflicting ideas and conflicting themes in, in that way. It's just a it's just simpler to set one table than um, and arrange the flowers on one table in one bouquet mm-hmm. than it is to um, try to uh manage entire mansion or or uh um, uh, you know what have you so it's um it's just uh it's a again a symptom of of how my my brain works um now this is so interesting to me that you you several times in your answer kind of push back on the idea of you writing this way because you like it <laughs> because to me, I don't know, reading these plays, it seemed like you were having a great time. I mean, I love writing and it seemed like you were that kind of writer that, you, you know, you were sitting down and, you know, oh, hanging out with the these great works that you admire and that you find inspiration in. And, you know, yeah. I mean, Spirits to Enforce, just to take a relatively random example, it seems to be largely about how The Tempest is so good and people should talk about that more, you know, like there's there's a real sense of like joy and delight and you seem to love being a playwright, is that not true? Oh, oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, when I get to those moments that you're reading, I I feel a great a great pleasure. I think most playwrights do. When you get to that that scene where you feel that's that's the, that's what I wanted, and that's how that's what I wanted to say. But it just takes a long time to get there. And spirits to enforce. Just to take that as an example, it's it's a play with twelve people all talking at the same time trying to put up a production of The Tempest and it turns out that they're whatever, it's too complicated to go into and I'm terrible at synopsizing my own plays. But suffice it to say, it's an extremely complicated work. So just arranging all those characters on stage and it was it just, it was at the time my son had just been born so he wasn't sleeping through the night. So I was writing that and I was also doing a translation of Cyrano at the same time. So believe me, <laughs> I remember those moments mostly as lying on the couch, completely sleep deprived, trying to struggle, trying to wrestle my, my brain, um, into, uh, into a coherent, some sort of coherent pattern. And Mm -hmm. when it, when it resolved itself, when all the things came together, or or at least to my satisfaction, yes, incredible fun. And, and, and the, the final scene of that, I just remember writing, uh, on my couch and just in one rush, but it just took months uh, to get to that place where you could just make it seem uh, where it was easy, where, where the words were just coming out. But um, before that, it is, it's, um, I mean, inside of my head, it's a really cluttered space. It's, it's not a, it's not a 
it's not a pretty sight. It's not, it's <laughs> not where you want to be most of the time. And that's what I think most playwrights deal with is that you just don't have, you have a very cluttered space in your head. If you're saying anything interesting at all, um, you, you want to, you're, you're plowing your way through the confusion of the world and your own confusion about the confusion of the world and trying to make something on stage that is, that exhibits some, um, containment of that chaos without, you know, without completely, uh, um, castrating that chaos mm-hmm. or whatever the word is. Um, sure. De-energizing that chaos. Uh, so that's, uh, I am sorry to, I, I'm not a, I'm not an unhappy person, but I'm sorry to, to say it <laughs> takes, it takes way more effort than, um, than it would seem to, to make those plays. And I'm not yeah. just sitting down with a, a song in my heart every time. And in fact, it's sure. quite the opposite. <laughs> Um, I'd like to talk more about Spirits to Enforce. I really love that play. And um, part of the premise of the play is that it's a it's a bunch of people doing fundraising calls to get funding to do a production of The Tempest, but they are also superheroes. And yeah. the sort of premise is they're going to use their superheroic abilities to stage this incredible production that sort of fully realizes all the stage magic that you might expect in a really great production of the tempest right um i was wondering reading that play if part of what it was about for you was this like idea that people are always expecting theater to be saving the world in some way um and so it's sort of a literalization of that it's like if the people who are actually saving the world decided to make theater um the rest of us would be uh rightly sort of upset at them for doing that you know like we would like the firefighters to be fighting fires not yeah exactly that's a really good way kiss me kate i'm gonna steal that um that's a good way of thinking about that play um also importantly in that play that the superheroes are actually the spirits from the island of the tempest um that that um beset the characters in that play the tempest so 400 years later after prospero has left Ariel and Caliban have sort of been have taken over the island, and Ariel um, is is sort of the head of the superheroes, and Caliban is of course the sort of Lex Luthor, um, and has uh, sort of you know so so that's who they're battling. So that's that was the the extra complexity in that play that I discovered midway through it. Before it was just superheroes um, putting up a production of the Tempest because that was funny to me. It became. Uh, more important to me when I realized, oh, they they have this, you know, this loss in their life. They they wish the world was like it was back in uh, in Prospero's time before he left the island. Um, but it took me a long time to get through that. That that play was originally was just this one off. It was a it was a commission from this summer camp in New Hampshire. Um, who every summer they they bring kids up there and they do theater with those kids, but they ask a, a working playwright and working directors to work on a particular theme and write a play for 18 characters around that theme. So I wrote up the, the theme that year was superheroes. I had to do 18 characters. And so I wrote this very short play um, that was that was the first version of this, but it was just a bunch of goofy, 18 goofy superheroes trying to um, uh, tell a fundraise for a, for a production of the Tempest, it didn't make much sense. <laughs> um, did, did the kids like it? I don't think they did. I wasn't there. <laughs> but, but, but years later, I ran into some. Years later, I unfortunately um, 
some some counsel at the camp thought it was be a good idea to uh, clue me into some Reddit stream or some Facebook stream where the where the kids now grown up, thirty years old or whatever they are, are were all talking about that weird play that they did. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. They all had bad memories of it. They was just terrible. They was like, what you know, that was just a terrible thing. But the um, so it made me. It was like the worst review I ever received in my life. Um, but it was it wasn't a very good play at that time. Then I took that version and with my company here in um, Chicago Theater Oob, like we, um, I, I struggled with it and made it made it um, better. Um, one of the things that seemed to be giving you uh, some pleasure in the writing of this play is coming up with superhero names. Yeah, and I'd like to read a few: the Silhouette, mm-hmm. Fragrance Fellow. Uh, the Untangler, uh-huh. and my favorite, the Snow Heavy Branch. What's your yeah. favorite of the, Snow of the Heavy super? Branch. <laughs> the, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's far, the one yeah, that was that's that's uh, and yeah, I, that's I, good. Yeah, yeah, he actually has the smallest, few, fewest number of lines. Um, but yeah, uh, I figured, um, yeah, give the character with the best name the, the fewest number of lines. That was mm-hmm. apparently my big idea. So you mentioned theater Ublek. And you've been working with Theater Black for this entire period. I think all of these plays were yeah. originally Theater Black plays, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how did that company come about? And how did you start? Did you were you a playwright and then you started the company, or what was the timeline of that process? Yeah, the core group of us met in Ann Arbor when we were students at the University of Michigan, uh, mostly in the residential college within the within the larger university. We're most of us members of the Breck Company there, um, and we're doing our own. Um, sort of open mic poetry and performance stuff. And a couple of the members of our sort of group of our, of our clique or whatever, our little um, uh, group of, of poets and theater artists and what have you um, launched the idea of having a theater company um, called Streetlight Theater. And the, the idea was that you could perform anything under a streetlight, um, you know, or, or anywhere you could perform anywhere with bare bones. And so that was the launch of, of, of a sort of the, 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 the company at that point. And we um, moved to Chicago in late in the late eighties, 88 and 89 and changed our name because at that time there was a bunch of, there was like street lamp theater and North light theater and a lot of other theaters with a similar name. So we changed our name to theater Ublek and that was in 88 and we've just been um going strong since um you know we're well over 30 years old now we've mostly survived just by being very small and not having a huge um we don't have seasons we don't have a we don't have any um ambitions to expand or grow or you know get a a big big building we don't even have uh, we're not beholding to a subscriber base to have seasons every year so yeah it's been a real um fortunate a blessing in my life to have a company not only of committed um, theater makers, but just by chance, just the actors in the company, um, two in particular, Diana Slickman and Cullen O'Reilly, um, just happen to be the perfect actors for my work. And I don't know how how I could be so fortunate in having that, but it is, I write for their voices, they understand immediately what I'm after. Um, and I can't, uh, I can't recommend it high, high, more highly than to have to find someone in your life who's an actor who understands your work and you can write for them. And, um, and it's, 
it's extremely gratifying. So that's, yeah, that's one of the strengths is that we've just, uh, actors and writers have found each other and put up plays and um, they seem to, they seem to work just fine. What share of the plays that Theater of Black does are the plays that you write? At this point, well, we're, I mean, because of COVID, we're kind of in hiatus um, and it's varied over the years. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's a difficult question because over 30 years, I'd have to go back and sort of do the percentages. Um, so at this point, um, we're not, we don't really have a season, but more recently, I would say, you know, I would write a third of the things that we would do, um, whether they're plays or larger projects. We had a, we had a 10 year project called Baudelaire in a Box where members of the company were um, translating uh, all the poems of Baudelaire's of uh, Flowers of Evil, and then um, um, doling them out to different composers and uh, music musicians and um, singers to write uh, songs based on them. So we had French and Spanish and Portuguese and English translations of, of well, not French translations, but the mm-hmm. Portuguese, uh, English, um, and Spanish translations of of. Baudelaire's work, and then over ten years, it's about 120 poems. Where there was a song cycle that we, we, we delivered over ten years, um, uh, and that was a huge thing, culminating uh, about five years ago in a huge um, th- uh, weekend of all those all those artists coming in from Puerto Rico, coming in from different states in this um, in the U.S. and performing all 120 songs, and it was amazing. So that that sort of thing was completely eclipsed anything that I was doing at the time. But, um, you know, I've sort of steadily, you know, before COVID, I was giving out a play every mm, every two years or so, every two or three years. And uh, I would come up with something and um, we'd do it. But in between those times, there's there was a lot of other work being done. Mm-hmm. And I understand that Theodore Ublach doesn't use a director. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. And, and uh, how does that work? So that came out uh, again from those early Ann Arbor days when we were all... Um, politically active and, you know, against the Reagan administration and the, and, uh, going to a lot of political, uh, protests and political action committees that are uh, groups that were working on a consensus basis. So it was all very, um, very democratic. So you wouldn't have a leader in your political protest. Um, we began to question the idea of having a director or leader in, in the company itself. And we were interested in different ideas of anarchism and different ideas of radical democracy. So the first time I wrote a full length play, and it was the first full length play that the company had done or attempted to do, I came into that first reading of that. And I said, I'd like to really um, structure this without a director and see what see, come up with a system to see if we can, we can manage this um, large play, overly written long play um, through, through consensus, through facilitators, through, through group process. And we, We've, we had a couple of uh, tenets, uh, one, one being that uh, the, something called actor's prerogative. That means the actor being the person who has to sell the, or, you know, to persuade the audience of the worth of the words or the actions that they're doing, they're, they're, they're sort of the, 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 they're the tip of the spear, right? So they, they have to be given sort of the ultimate say in how and what they say. So actor's prerogative meant that if they didn't like a line, they could change it, they could cut it, they could rewrite it, whatever. Um, and that would go for anything. So if they didn't like a particular action, they didn't like blocking, they could change it. Um, 
the the playwright would be there to try to lobby for their own their own words or to get into the discussion. But in the end, it wouldn't be a director or a playwright stepping in saying, you do it this way. It would be the actor saying, look, this is how I think it should be done. And they do it. So that power dynamic was was a little different. And it was all very from a sort of uh, a lefty, idealistic, uh, political um, uh, um, origin. When we actually went into rehearsals, it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> nobody was learning their lines. Blocking was a mess. And we got to dress rehearsal of that night. This is back in 1984, 83, somewhere like that. And um, we're, we're, we're in dress rehearsal. And it's an absolute disaster. The overly long play that I had written was way too long. And people didn't know their lines. And it was just this, this total train wreck of a dress rehearsal, way beyond the idea that a good dress rehearsal means a, a, a bad dress rehearsal means a good opening night. We knew it was a disaster. So we we go through this terrible run through and then we sit down in a circle to do notes as we, you know, we, uh, again, an overly long note session is going gonna, is gonna to be upon us. And we're just all dreading this. And we're sitting in a circle beginning to do the consensus note uh, taking and giving and blah, blah, blah. And David Isaacson, who is the who is one of the founders of our company, um, who is the most peaceful guy, the most uh, diplomatic person, the most, you know, the most sort of uh, the nicest guy in the group, um, is the last person to give, bark out commands or, or be adamant in his opinions. Before anybody can say anything, David says, OK, we're going to take a 15 minute break. Then we're going to come back and we're going to run it again. And nobody questioned it. Nobody said, no, 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 I've got lots of notes. We just we just got up and we ran the whole thing again. And it was better. And then opening night was great. Um, and at that point, it became less of a, an ideological um, uh, way of thinking about doing theater. And it became an aesthetic. It became, became for us, it became more like a jazz band or, or something akin to that. Um, a collaborative process that is chaotic but uh, believes in the organic whole and outcomes something in the end that is um, that is sort of deliciously, ridiculously, um, haphazardly chaotic. For a playwright, it's it's really helped me because there's I really have to go into rehearsals and go into those first readings and, and all of rehearsals with the attitude that I my work really has to persuade. The, the actors who are performing it, that the, mm -hmm. the actors really have to believe absolutely in the words. And there's, and there's no excuse for either of us. If they're not feeling it, if they're not, if they're not, if they're not feeling the, the language, they can't just grouse about it behind my back and be like, Mikkel's a terrible playwright. And you know, they really have to confront me and, and say, look, this is why it's not working. I really want this to change. Here's my suggestion, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no buffer between between me and the and the person who's trying to, to deliver my words. Um, and that and I and I I've worked as a director. I, I have <laughs> some of my best friends are directors, and I've worked <laughs> with other theater companies, um, uh, many many companies uh, around the country, and, and worked with directors on new work. And it's been a really um, great process. But it is a fact that those directors often act as a as a nice buffer between you and the, the the ensemble. That there's no sort of direct notes that you give to the actors. The actors don't give direct notes to you. It's it's this uh, sort of through this this middle person, and mm -hmm. that can be very comforting. And it's a, it's, it sort of keeps everybody on an even keel. And there's less um, I don't know. There's less. There's maybe there's less. Uh, 
uh, botheration or less um, arguments or whatever. Um, I mean, it obviously varies from case to case, but it does, I find as a playwright, it does put me in a position of I'm sort of sitting in the back row of the theater, sort of watching my work develop, and I'm not in the process in the same way as I am with a with an Ublek show. So I think there's there's risks and benefits to, to both ways of doing it, but for better or ill, um, uh, you know, I, I do, I prefer the, the Ublek way or it, it's, it's hard, but it's, um, it's where, where I've done my, I, I would say my most uh, dynamic work. So you, you mentioned that you'd kind of worked around the country and you've, you've done things at other theaters, but you, you do have kind of a home base theater in Chicago with theater Ublek. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you like about making work in Chicago? Oh, that's a great, um, I was going to say, that's a great question, but that's become such a cliche. It's just basically a way to say, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. <laughs> yeah, let me stall um, for a couple of seconds. <laughs> well, I'm from Michigan and most of my most of the, the company is from the Midwest. Uh, when we moved to Chicago, there just wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any doubt about it. We weren't going to move to New York. We weren't going to move to Detroit. Chicago just seemed like the natural choice. It just seemed like that's our, that's our city. That's our that's our Midwest. That's our that's our place. And then when we arrived here, it really did. It just felt like home. And I was just talking about this with um, a, a theater historian here, Mark Larson, who's who's written this great book on the oral history of Chicago theater, and saying around this this maybe gets into too many weeds for you um, out there or for your listeners. But in Chicago, there was this time between eighty eight and roughly 88 and 91, these three years where a number of theater companies um, with similar sensibilities all formed at the same time. Um, so Greg Codis, who wrote You're in Town, was, uh, was just freshly out of college with his group. He had formed this group called Cardiff Giant, and they were doing shows right around from Theater Ublek, right around the corner from us. And um, original work, hilarious work. Um, we love their shows. They came to our shows. Uh, later, the Neo-Futurarium, the Neo-Futurists uh, were, were launched around the same time. Greg became part of their groups, as did many of his compatriots, many of the people that we work with. Um, the Neo-Futurists are still running strong. Their, their show, 30 Plays in 60 Minutes, is in New York, is in San Francisco, is in, is in Chicago, has been, has been a mainstay for over 30 years. And there's something about, and there's something about the performance style of those companies, as well as Looking Glass Theater, Mary Zimmerman's company, and especially Mary Zimmerman's plays that are very, there's some, there's something that feels very of a piece that's hard to put your finger on. It is, it is uh, informal, but very, um, very, very informal, very uh, intimate towards the audience, very warm and welcoming to the audience. At the same time, it's not just silly uh, camp. Uh, it's irreverent, but it's not campy. It's um, it's literary, but not uh, obscure uh, or arcane. It um, yeah. So there's there. I'm just there's just we're trying to get words around this at this point. There's the the, mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. in this in this um, in this group is that there was this cluster of companies that that formed an aesthetic that was kind of a counter to the Steppenwolf aesthetic. The Steppenwolf was you know, a great theater and they, but they had established themselves as the theater and, and it took a long time for, um, I hope you'll forgive me for, for New York to, to understand that Chicago was more than just Steppenwolf, that, that, uh, that we could do things that were not strictly, uh, straightforward realism, um, yeah. as exciting as that, as that stuff was coming out of Steppenwolf. 
Or different um, from like David Mamet. I think that's right, the other right. Chicago so, thing so that Mamet, people think of. Yeah. yeah. So and um, and that aesthetic was, was so in the late '80s. I think there was there was people coming to town, like my group and other groups, um, young strivers who were first of all saying, "Well, we can't be John Malkovich. We're not that good. Or we can't <laughs> do that particular thing. We can't be David Mamet. We can't we can't do Steppenwolf and that sort of tradition and that." what can we do? We, we, we can, we can do something different. And we did. And, and I think that's a pretty common story that the young up and comers just do, just try to do, to add to the conversation by some doing something opposite or completely different to, to what they, um, what has become the establishment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so what was the question? Oh yeah. <laughs> what makes this a Chicago? So there is, I, I would claim that there is a Chicago aesthetic that came, that was different than the Steppenwolf aesthetic. That is not as famous or not as well known, but I think if you've seen any of Mary Zimmerman's work, um, I think it's very much of a piece with that. And, um, and it does also come out of, of, of our tradition of improvisation and us being the improv capital of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that, there's that sort of threading into things. Not that any of us were improv, but that that when you come to Chicago as a young theater maker, you go see the Steppenwolf shows, but you also then go to the free um, Second City shows that are that are 11 o'clock at night. And I remember going there in 88, 89, and seeing a young Mike Myers just, you know, before he was Mike Myers, and others just completely ripping it up and being amazing on stage. Um, and... And so you're, you're, you're sort of catching both of those influences and trying to make something yourself that can, can participate and not imitate. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be a sort of intimacy and informality that makes sense when you think about a theater like Theater Ublek in conversation with that kind of improv style that people yeah. think of so much in Chicago. Another thing that you said that I thought was interesting is sort of the idea that they're literary but not... I don't know, for lack of a better word, pretentious, you know, and something that you do in these plays, which I I found really lovely is that, you know, even though they're based on classic canonical works of, of literature, um, you don't assume that everyone in the audience has read them uh, or knows what you're talking about, you know, in Hunchback Variations, which is based on, you know, again, hard to describe your plays, but a central conceit of it is that there are two people trying to replicate the maybe unstageable, uh, sonic stage direction from a cherry orchard and you tell them you tell people that you tell you know you situate in the context and you know you read out the stage direction so that people know what you mean and is that a sort of was that a sort of conscious choice that you yes. made to like say if I'm going to do plays that are intertextual in this super intense way I have to like tell people what the original thing is like I think you put your finger on it I think that's what we we all try to do um to the best of our ability. We're talking about things that may be literary and may be historical or, or um, have political complexity to them, but really try to speak to that, you know, to that person who doesn't, who hasn't read that stuff, who doesn't know that stuff um, as best you're able. Is that not to drop references that completely, you know, make people feel like they're on the outs and, and they're, they're not getting it because of there's some, there's some joke that they don't get because they didn't read a particular book. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's, that is a, for me, that's a, that's a test that every play has to, has to, of my plays has to pass that I have to see this, the play through the eyes of someone who doesn't, who hasn't read 
William Blake or hasn't read, um, uh, you know, hasn't, hasn't read the cherry orchard or hasn't read, uh, uh, Macbeth or hasn't read whatever, um, whatever it is that I'm going on about, um, and really take it from, from trying to bring them into a, a world where, where those texts exist and people talk about them, but that they can catch up to the conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, the, the other thing that Ublek works with is, is outside eyes. So we, uh, in place of just the, the ensemble giving notes to each other in a, in, in a kind of circle jerk, we bring in anybody, anybody who, uh, who wants to come in and anybody's welcome. And so actors can invite anybody. The playwright can, can invite anybody. Anybody from the ensemble can invite anybody. So it could be the bus driver you met or your, your great aunt or, you know, your 17-year-old nephew or whatever. Uh, people that come from all walks of life. And they sit and they watch a rehearsal. Maybe it'll be a full run through. Maybe it'll be just a few scenes. And then we give the, the floor to them and they give notes. Um, and so you're always you're always being checked by you know how 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 is the play reading to someone who doesn't doesn't know everything that doesn't know everything that you're trying to 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 reference. Um, so there's that filter that works works really well. I think is um, just having a you know something like an analog of an actual audience coming in and speaking um, to what their experience of your work is throughout the process. Uh, the first play in the volume is, I'm going to read out the full title, An Apology for the Course and Outcome of Certain Events Delivered by Dr. John Faustus on This His Final Evening, which was also the first of your plays that I ever encountered. Um, right. Yeah, you mentioned that. I want to know I want to know how that... So you said you were in high school when, when you saw that play? Or, yes, or... I, did, I did the... Uh, I, I think I was... If I'm remembering this correctly, I think somebody made me read that play in a, a class at the um, at the Cherubs program at Northwestern, which is like oh, a oh, you were in Cherubs, oh, that's yeah, awesome. yeah, what yeah. Years were you? We were. So, uh, I Gosh, think they this did would have been. Play. I think they they somehow split it into thirty parts or something. They did Spirits, by the way, an hour long version of Spirits. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think I was there. I think I read it in. Right, right. I don't think I saw a production of it. Um, right. Yeah, but so uh, I it's, it, that play is the earliest in this volume, but it is not your, as you've indicated, not your earliest play by quite some time. What about that play make, made you think, okay, this is the earliest play that I want to include in this volume of six plays? Do you feel like well, you kind of figured something out with that play? Yeah, so to, uh, briefly in a nutshell, so we come to Chicago in the late 80s, we do a bunch of work, uh, we sort of put ourselves on the map, and then I have a kind of... Um, uh, a kind of breakdown, um, and I and I need to get out. I leave the company, and I and I sort of wander around until I I uh, and I'm nearly homeless at this point. I, I'm I'm really it's it's not a good situation in the like around ninety two ninety three, and I'm I realize I need to go back to school. I had dropped out of University of Michigan, and I end up at Bennington College, um, and I'm just there for a couple of years. But in those years, I'm getting my undergraduate degree, I'm just working on trying to discover a voice that works for me, that works with the clutter in my head, um, that tries to just tries to figure out how I can, can write, um, with the, the enormous amount of confusion that was in my, my head at the time. And Faustus came out of a course I took with Bill Reichblum, um, 
uh, around all the Faustus texts. And we were just reading the, the Goethe and reading the Marlowe and reading the, the Thomas Mann and, and other smaller things. And the, the, at the end of the term, we had to come up with a, uh, a final project. And so I wrote, I wrote this play and performed it there um, in the coal cellar of this ancient mansion on, on, the, on the hill. Um, and that was, so that I really marked as my first play uh, that really sort of launched my, um, my adult um, adventure in, in playwriting. And everything before then was was kind of a run up, but then there was this this breakdown, and then out of that breakdown became uh, became my my so called mature work, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But Faustus was yeah that that's the, that's what that's what um, brought it all together for me. That the writing of that was was uh, where I felt okay. Now I ha- I have a handle on things. I I um, I have that simple toolkit that I can sit down with and make stuff with. Um, uh, so yeah, that's why it's the first play in the volume. Yes. That's sort of where things began with me. Yeah. I, I didn't know that story, but, um, but it makes sense. I mean, it's a play that, that is the, the main character, the, the Faustus in that play is very much, you know, confused and scared and the sort of like pathetic kind of whiny version of Faustus, um, kind of petulant almost, uh, was that, was that sort of, I don't know, cathartic for you to perform that, to kind of just <laughs> put all your anxieties out into the coal cellar of a mansion on the campus of Bennington? Absolutely. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was a highlight for me to, to see something or feel something work. And, um, and I think that's true of, of anybody who's trying to make, make theater. Um, but you have, it was a, it was a breakthrough moment for me. Um, but what? But it was even better though. That I came back. I performed it in in, in Chicago in '99, and it was. And I rejoined Ublek and um, and sort of then began a more serious um, endeavor to try to write more plays for for Ublek and become a playwright. And that was the first play that sort of put uh, put me on the map here, or got me more attention here in town. But the great breakthrough was when we remounted it about eight years after that in 2008. And I realized, oh, I'm not the best person to play this. Cullum O'Reilly is the best person to play this. And he was. And he so it was that giving over that role that was, as you say, sort of cathartic for me to memorize and rant and rave and perform um, that the voice of that character was was cathartic for me in the 90s and towards the end of the 90s. But once the aughts came around and I'm really trying to be a more of a writer and learn that craft, the um, uh, just that that pivot point of, of understanding or allowing or releasing that character to somebody else was was the great the great epiphany. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you seem to return to in a bunch of your plays and I would and starting in the Faustus play is. Well, let me back up. I feel like if you're doing theater that is relatively stripped down in presentation, there's one thing you can do, which is do plays that are about stuff that is very ordinary. You know, (laughs) they do a kitchen table family argument play and have a kitchen table. And that's all you need because that's all that's the sort of central artifact in this kitchen. Um, But what you do is often have people describe things that would be impossible to stage (laughs) and sort of gesture towards 
the rather creaky representational apparatus of the theater and kind of like remind your audience how bad it is at representing real life. Hmm. Um, like I'm thinking of in It Is Magic, the they're in the bottom floor of a building where the top floor is on fire. Yeah. Um, and it's like sort of like you'd love to see that. And it's maybe a light cue where you could distantly see some flames in the background or something. What do you think is interesting to you from a kind of writer's standpoint in plays that sort of confess their own failure in a way? Hmm. Um, geez. Well, I think it's funny, first of all, to confess your failure as an artist. Um, uh, I think, but it's I think Shakespeare thinks it's funny. Like, I think that yeah. I think Shakespeare is oh, doing this all the time. And I think he just, I think part of him is like, oh, it's fun that I'm just going to tell people I'm in a, they're in a forest now and they're going to believe me because I told them. It's not only, it, it is fun. I think it's fun with a capital F. Don't you? I mean, don't you think it's that, that trick that all really good players, this is what I, I teach uh, playwriting now at the University of Chicago, and one of the things I try to drive home to to the students is the thing that theater can do, the pleasure that it can offer that I think movies don't, is that it can both bring a very present thing, that kitchen table onto stage, right? You have a, a kitchen table, you have a, a knife, or you have somebody throwing a pot at somebody else, and all that is present action. The, the thing that is very real and very present in front of the audience's mind, they feel it and they see it and they hear it in real time. There's that power, but equal to that power is the power of, of, of playwrights and, and actors to describe or evoke what is in the wings, what is off stage, um, to, to bring into the audience's uh, inner eye or mind's eye something fantastical or something, whatever, real or, or what have you, very palpable, very graphic, and, and conjure that in their imagination. And those, both those things—the very present, the very real, and the and the and the distant and invisible, um, and yet describable—those um, those sort of have an equal power on the stage. And you should be employing both of those powers um, to the best of your ability. So I I like the I like your your talk of the the real kitchen table, um, and the power of that I think is is obvious. Um, but you just can't forget the the great thing that both the Shakespeare and the Greeks do, and that is they have a character come in at some point and they describe some horrific murder, or you know, or, or a monster coming out of the sea, or you know, or I'm thinking of uh, Theseus's death and, and the Bacchae, how well that's described. I mean, it's just uh, it, that sort of power is is what makes theater to me, the language of theater, uh, vibrant and wonderful and. Um, should be should be employed by by all theater makers as mm-hmm. much as possible. Um, and in the the Greek messenger scenes, it's not like a story from long ago. It's like this yeah. crazy thing just this happened. Just I need happened. to tell you yeah. about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that I I find great joy in that. And I think all the all the playwrights that I that I really like and enjoy they they just do it in spades. They just do it so well. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, I'm not sure if I, I'm not, I don't remember what the question was, Andy. I can't remember if I answered it, but that was, that's, uh, I tried, I tried, that's the, that's the other reason I think for me to keep things in one place, like mm-hmm. establish that one, that one place, that one sort of isolated little simple kitchen table or what have you, uh, you know, 
and just a, just very minimalist and everything in that space is real. Everything, there's nothing that's allowed in that that's pretending to be something else. So a chair is a chair, a rug is a rug, a lectern is a lectern, um, et cetera. So everything is, there's nothing that's trying to pretend to be something else. But then that, that for me, that allows a nice, a, a sort of uh, platform to spring from to, to, um, to talk about the fantastical outside of that to bring into that space through language and through imagination, just by saying so a messenger speech or what have you um, just really wonderful and um, adventurous images and, and stories that, that live outside the, the mundane. I have a friend, Nora Casey, who took one of your playwriting classes at oh. university of Chicago and, and oh, loved it and had nothing but good things to say about it. Um, and she said that one of your exercises was, I, I might be getting this wrong, but something like you were all you you asked all the students to try to figure out ways to adapt Frank O'Hara's lunch poems into plays. Oh she goes way back. That was a whole class. That was a and, whole uh, class. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was my first class that I taught. And it was kind of a disaster. I mean, I just talked to a, a um, Eddie DeHayes, who's uh, up at Brown now. They're just getting um, their their uh, MFA in directing. Um, and they just were in town working on some some guy's play, and we had coffee. And they told me, uh, <laughs> in no uncertain terms, what a disaster that class was. <laughs> and, the, all the, and, and the students were all huddled after class, going, "What does he want? What does he want from us?" And I was like, "I don't know what I, you know." I was like, "I was like, I was just yeah." We were trying to adapt Frank O'Hara's lunch poems, which I love, and I thought, They're "I so love good. this book. I love I love these poems so much. There there must be some way." To, to introduce them to to a group of undergraduates, uh, theater students, and we can just we can dig into them and make wonderful theater out of them. And I think uh, I would be interested to know what Nora <laughs> really thought. But um, uh, but I, I remember the classes like being really very difficult for people, and um, and so it, it was never repeated. We never now now I just okay. teach other things. But uh, <laughs> well, what, I don't that, think I would. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so what I, I'd be interested to hear, like what what kind of exercises do you do? Because I I thought that I mean when I heard that story, I sort of assumed it was like this is your method, you know. Um, yeah. And I gotta say, that's a very bold first class, you know. I um, just thought it would work because I I was introduced <laughs> to Frank O'Hara when I was an undergraduate, and I thought, oh, this is just great, and um and just was very inspiring to me. So I think I was just going off of that, and I was just like, we can just. These, these poems are so open and personable mm-hmm. and, and they're just so, they, they feel like little plays to me. There's got to be a way to just make them great. Um, and there were some great, great things that, as I remember, there was great things that came out yeah. of there, but I really went into it without any preconceptions about what, what would, what the students should really do. And, and I didn't really have any, any real guidelines for them. And I think mm-hmm. they really stumbled around just trying their best. And I, and I, you know, I guess I tried to be, I was probably too honest at times and was like, no, that's not really, that doesn't really work <laughs> you know, or whatever. And, yeah. um, it, you know, I would be interested to talk to Nora about her experience, but, um, anyway, uh, my methods are pretty straightforward. I, I am, I, you know, we read great plays. We read, we read plays that, that excite me. I never try to assign plays that are just important from a historical perspective or something. I'd really try to, I, you know, I preface everything by saying, look, the, the plays that I'm going to ask you to read every week are plays that I read when I am struggling to to come up with uh, inspiration. 
So they're plays that excite me. And so that's, you know, but I have a pretty Catholic taste. I have wide ranging taste. What are so, some of the examples? So uh, uh, anything by Annie Baker, um, uh, Booty Candy, uh, Wojtek is a go-to every single. So Wojtek we do every, I, I, Wojtek is out of the gate. Wojtek is like, we're, you know, any translation you guys want to bring in, and we read Wojciech and I say, this is an example of a 19th century play that wasn't done in its time, but is now done all the time. But it, it was, it's unfinished. It's out of order. We don't know what its real structure is. It doesn't really seem to have a structure. Um, so why is it this play that, that still works? And we sort of meditate on that. We sort of try to try to get to the root of why, what makes a play work. And that's why I begin with Wojciech. One, for those sort of, uh, questions around um, what makes a play work, but also because I really love it as a play. Mm-hmm. Um, we read, so, so it'll vary from, from term to term, but we usually do one Shakespeare and we'll spend two weeks on, on one Shakespeare sort of digging into it. Um, but we'll, you know, so then, uh, uh, but it's just one play a week, unless it's Shakespeare, then I break it up into two. Um, and then I ask, the way I ask students to read it is to read it and then write a brief um, two-line, two- or three-line essay called uh, What Would I Steal? And that just means the uh, have them read the play as you would just read any play, but be a, aware of the moments that you are leaning in and you find something particularly interesting, a line or a moment in the play that you think is funny or particularly insightful or whatever, that you think it works and then try to decode that for yourself. Try to put into 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 language what it is uh, that is making that moment work. Not just a sort of thumbs up or thumbs down, but just like, okay, I like this. There's a really funny line. I think it's a funny line to me because of the the two lines that preceded it really set it up well, or whatever whatever the case may be. And that that's an effort to try to get students to to get out of their um, sort of thumbs up, thumbs down you know, Roger Ebert um, kind of view of the arts and just being an audience member, but being an active creator, you have to develop uh, your own personal aesthetic and understand why, why it is that you like something or don't like something and try to really come up with rules of thumb around what it is that works for you um, in a piece. And so that's that's my main thing is just trying to, to get them to, to look at... Um, the great works of literature, but also the literature, the, the, the works that their own fellow students are turning out in their own work as well, is to try to look at look at it with that critical eye of, I like this, but why is it that I, why, why do I think that it, it works? And how can I steal that same mechanism or rule of thumb? How can I steal that for my own work when I'm sitting down in front of the computer or a blank sheet of paper and I've got no ideas, can I just lift that thing that I like from Shakespeare? or lift that thing that I like from Annie Baker um, or what have you. Um, And then we just, we write a, we write a a short play over the course of the quarter that UFC is only nine weeks uh, long. So there's not much time to write anything much longer than that, but we work on a, on a good solid 10 to 15 minute piece um, over the course of the term. And by the end of it, they have a, you know, whether they like the class or not, they come out of it with a play that they've written that has a, beginning, middle, and end, and um, um, it's something they can, you know, produce themselves or they can send off or, or what have you. Um, but that's important to me as well, is that we we use the class as a deadline to get something done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that certainly sounds like a fascinating, very well-ordered class. Um, 
maybe maybe try the Franco Harry thing one more time though. I don't know. Maybe it was a fluke. <laughs> uh, I I think about the I don't remember what poet or poem it's in, but there's a line in one of those poems where he says, "I read because I'm a writer. You read for some mysterious reason." Um, and I think about that line once a week at least. It's just. <laughs> such That's a funny really, i don't know i don't remember that that would be a great line if it were in like a drawing room comedy you know like so yeah. many of the yeah anyways those, <laughs> this is like the, the coldest of cold takes but the, those lunch poems are very fun and funny and good they are but half of them what you don't realize is that i, I didn't really realize this until i got into the class is that they're very different from there's half of them are quite personable quite like that straight mm-hmm. that, that franco era voices that feels very intimate like he's just in the room with you talking and then there's these other there's stanzas within those poems that are utterly opaque and completely surreal and come yeah. out of his his love of surrealism and, and his love of I don't know the imagists and stuff that is that um, that is a very sharp contrast to that and I had no idea what to do with those those parts of O'Hara's work to to turn those into into uh, into theater the other stuff seems very you know the 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 one where he feels like a person talking to you feels naturally theatrical, right? It feels Mm -hmm. like a little play. Then when he wanders off into the the stranger stuff, it's, it becomes more difficult, but um, that seems like, well, that's a lot of what your plays do. Like they, they feel very conversational and then they have these sort of, (laughs) these sort of leaps into the stratosphere with these kind of beautiful, amazing um, kind of feats of language. Uh, You know, thank you. I, Yeah. I feel that they're always tethered, though, to trying to, uh, in, in, in contrast to the O'Hara, it, it just feels, they still feel, feel very simple to me in the, or, or uh, approachable, even if it's <laughs> fantastical. But his work does, at points, feels like you're reading Ezra Pound and you're like, what? Yeah. You know? And so it's um, um, nothing against Ezra Pound, but I don't know how theatrical his poems are. Um, well, O'Hare is a New Yorker. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's a Chicago, New York thing. (laughs) Well, Mikkel, it's been such a pleasure talking with you about these plays. I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I just wanted to thank you once again for being on New Books in Performing Arts. And I really encourage anybody who's interested in, you know, discovering more about these plays to get this volume, um, you know, 20 bucks, six plays. Great deal. Uh, deal. Run out and get it and uh, you won't regret it. Thanks so much, Andy. It was real. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And um, yeah, just uh, stay in touch. And, and uh, I'm I'm just tickled that you know Nora and that she <laughs> she remembered that class apparently with some fondness. Um, so yeah, say hi to Nora if you see her. I will do so.